0: Church, is good to be uh, back again with you guys, and if this is first time or first time in a long time, we are continuing to uh, in a series we started back in the fall. We're about to wrap it up here before the summer, but um, uh, we started a series called The Big Story where we are talking about the big story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story of Scripture all together, and so... Uh, This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, you can do so. If you do not, I'm going to be putting these passages up on the screen, and it'll be easy for you to uh, follow along. Um, As many of you know, we've been doing a a big home renovation project at the Armstrong Casa for the past, feels like five years. It's been five months, and uh, uh, it's been an absolute mess. Uh, We are moving Kat's mom in with us here pretty soon, and Everybody asks, are you ready for your mother-in-law to move in with you? And I say, uh, you don't know my mother-in-law. Uh, she is, uh, she is um, just gold and um, makes an incredible lemon pie, too. And so probably going to gain about 50, pound, 50 pounds this next year, but uh, we'll, you'll kind of know what's happening there. But um, have any of you guys ever been through a renovation recently? You kind of live through it maybe? I mean, it's just—I mean, madness, right? Like you kind of go into it and you, you go in with a little bit of expectation, and then all those expectations are immediately eliminated. I, I'm kind of going through this thing, and I had no idea there was 100 different ways to paint a wall white. Did you guys know that? I like, go, I'm not kidding you. Like, literally, hundreds of, of different ways to paint a wall white. I'm like, I want that wall white. And you're like, okay, what, what color white? We're talking about white dove, cloud white, linen white, white blush, right? Lily of the valley. I don't even know what that means. Uh, ivory, cotton ball, simply white, bright white, paper white. Like, what kind of, what kind of white are we talking about on that wall? And, like, that's just for the white parts, too. Like, we have a little bit of a blue going on in this thing that's happening here. And, like, blue, you've got baby blue, azure blue, sky blue, royal blue, navy blue, midnight blue, police blue, right? That's uh, Caleb's favorite right there. Cadet, Air, Air Force blue. I mean, we've got, like, a million different blues to choose from in that whole thing, too, right? And then on top of that, like, I've got to build a fence and I tell the guy, I'm like, okay, we've uh, I've got my my current fence is leaning against my privacy bushes in the backyard. I'm not even kidding. You. The thing's probably like 50 years old and rotted out and stuff. I'm like, okay, we need a new fence. I'm like, okay, what kind of fence do you want? Are we talking about six foot or eight foot board on board, or are we going side by side? Do you want vertical slats? Do you want horizontal slats? Or are we talking about like, you want the metal post? Do You want the wood posts? Do you want and what kind of what, what kind of stain do you want on there too? Right? And I'm, I'm kind of going through this whole renovation. I'm going, okay, this whole thing is this nuts. It's like there's a million different options and. And it occurred to me, like, as I'm going through it, I'm going, you know what, I I think I really like the fact that I've got options. Like, it, it seems kind of crazy and stuff, but I kind of like the fact that there's a hundred different ways to paint a wall white. And I like the fact that there's dozens of different ways to build a fence and so that they're not all going to look the exact same way. And the reason that I say that is because I think for a lot of us, I think that's exactly our problem with Jesus. He doesn't exactly give us a whole lot of options when it comes to following him. I mean... In John chapter 14, verse 6, he's not going to say, I'm one of many different ways, many different paths, many different truths to come to the Father. He's going to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Like, even in our passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 3, he's going to tell Nicodemus, he's going to say, you won't even be able to see or enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You must be born again in order to do it. And people today are going to be talking about it in terms of the bovenism to believe in this kind of thing. Another person talked about it like this and said, At first glance, Jesus' claims seem to smack of arrogance, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. In a world that elevates pluralism and tolerance is sacred, claiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the only exclusive path to God is a proverbial slap on the face to every other belief system. Another person wrote and said this is a spiritual dictatorship that encourages smug superiority and unnecessary judgment. The only real sin is to call someone else a sinner. And so there's a lot of pushback uh, when it's going to come to what Jesus is going to say in our text this morning. And kind of like what we talked about last week just a little bit, it's not without a good reason, though, right? I mean, historically, we haven't always done well with the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about the Crusades or the Salem Witch Trials or things of that nature. I mean, even today, ISIS is destroying and dominating everyone who does not... agree with their exclusive views of God. So it's not necessarily a Christianity problem, but it is a problem for anyone who holds an absolute view of God or exclusive understanding of divine truth. And so this morning, I kind of want to double down on a little bit of what we started last week. And I want to talk about how we reconcile the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ with uh, this cultural tension that we face today that is keeping so many people from even listening and considering the claims of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn John chapter 3 Um, Where we are in the big story, we have turned the page, Old Testament to New Testament. And and if you are jumping in here, I wanna remind us week in and week out, we are dealing with the exact same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Um, was there in the very beginning. He's continuing through the New Testament, exact same God, exact same mission. God is bringing his message and his work of redemption and reconciliation to the ends of the world. And he's doing it through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. There's just gonna be a brand new covenant which is going to come into place at the finished life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be seeing here in this new covenant. In um, the passage we're going to be looking in this morning, John chapter 3, it's actually going to take place just before uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The past few weeks, we've been camping out in the Sermon on the Mount. And as you remember from that, like that's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? Uh, We read in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus travels throughout all of Galilee and he's preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he starts the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the very beginning of his ministry. Well, John chapter 3 is actually going to take place just before that little period of time right there. He's actually still in Jerusalem. Um, He has just begun his ministry. He hasn't really begun his preaching ministry at this point in time. But in John chapter 2, it's his first miracle. It's kind of his coming out party. People are recognizing that he has authority, that he's not like any other men. And they're beginning to wonder who he is. But he goes to a wedding feast in Cana. He's able to turn water into wine, uh, which is always a a crowd favorite, right? Like people are going to start paying attention to you if you can do that. And, uh, and then, of course, at the end of chapter two, he goes, there's this famous scene where he goes into the temple and he starts turning over tables and just rebuking the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees of their day. And so uh, just mighty, mighty acts of, of Jesus there in chapter two. And so people are beginning to wonder, who is this Jesus who has all this kind of authority? And this is begin really before his, his public preaching ministry begins. And so uh, that's where I want to pick it up here in verse one. It's going to start like this, and it's going to say there's a, there's a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you're doing unless God were with him. Now, a few things up front. When it says that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council, we need to recognize that this is, these, this is, a, this is a man of the religious elite that we've been talking about the past few weeks. I mean, when it says that he's a Pharisee, like the Pharisees were a, uh, I mean, they, they were a pretty much a ruling council, a ruling party uh, in the nation of Israel, and uh, they were the people that were in charge. They came about largely uh, in Ezra's time, about 500 years before Jesus came on the scene. Uh, We've we've referenced this a number of times, so think back on our timeline and our big story. Uh, Israel's coming out of captivity at the hand of the Babylonians for 70 years, 500 years before Jesus comes on. And they're coming back into Jerusalem to try to reestablish their right worship practices. And as you can imagine, if if you've been taken into captivity for 70 years, you're coming home for the first time in a long time, nothing is the same as you remember it, right? Like you're coming back home and, and everything's been destroyed and wiped out. But then on top of that, you're coming home and you're finding Babylonians living in your own home, You're finding all these different people that have taken over your city and nothing's the same as it used to be. And on top of that, they're learning their own lesson, right? Like they were taken away into captivity as a judgment by God because they'd fallen into all kinds of rampant idolatry and things of that nature. And so they're coming out of this thing going, okay, God, we're paying attention, right? Like, we are not going to fall back into rampant idolatry. They were living with all these different people, and they started to worship their false gods. And they're coming out of captivity, and they're going, okay, we've learned our lesson. It is all you. We are going to worship you. And so they come back into Jerusalem after a long time away, and they want to be really, really certain that they are establishing right worship practices before God. But the problem is that they go about it um, all wrong, essentially. They take a separatist attitude rather Rather than um, a missional attitude that's integrating with this culture and being effective in carrying on the work of God in those people's life. We read about it in Ezra 6.21. Check this out. It says, So the Israelites who had returned from the exile, they ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So that's what they did. They're coming home, and they're thinking, okay, we need to be completely different from everybody else here, so we're going to do things our own way. And that's when the Pharisees are going to rise into power. They're not just going to observe God's law. They're going to build an entirely different law around the law, and then another law around that law, so that they're not even coming close to offending God's original law. And, of course, that's going to snowball over the next 500 years to create this community of empty religiosity and dogmatic practices very, very far from the heart of God. And that's going to be Nicodemus. On top of that, a few chapters later, we're going to find out that he's not just a Pharisee, but he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is really, really the ruling party uh, in the nation of Israel at that time. You can think about him kind of like a Supreme Court system today. Uh, they were ruled by the Romans. The Romans allowed the Jews to have a little bit, have a little bit of self-rule going on there. Um, and as part of that self-rule, they, they, they build and establish the Sanhedrin, which again is kind of like a court system, which is going to monitor and regulate all the religious and civil um, issues that are going on in Israel at that time. And so that's Nicodemus, Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, incredibly religiously elite, politically elite, uh, which may have a lot to do with why he's coming to see Jesus at night when no one is going to see what he's doing. Jesus has just rebuked all of his friends and the Pharisees. He may have been there in the temple that day. He doesn't want anybody else to know that he's coming and he's curious about who Jesus is. And so he comes to him in the middle of the night. And, of course, the reason's not exactly given, but it's uh, most likely that he's probably coming in the cloak of darkness to figure out who this Jesus is. Last thing I want to say kind of before we get into this text is, is that we're not that, unlo- we're not that far away from doing the exact same thing that Nicodemus does. Everyone lives by faith in something, and we genuinely believe that it's true, right? like like everyone lives by faith in something and we genuinely believe it's true and it's not just nicodemus and it's not just these religious leaders and these and these people here and it's not just the disciples it's atheists and it's agnostics and it's muslims and it's christians and it's jews and it's mormons and everybody in between we have all got different faith assumptions whether we want to admit it or not verse 2 he's going to come to jesus and he's going to say rabbi we know that you're a teacher Right, that's what he's going to say. We know that you're a teacher and you come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you are doing unless God were with him. That is who Nicodemus believes that Jesus is. He is a teacher. He's not necessarily the son of God. He's not necessarily the Messiah. Um, he's not necessarily any of these other things, but he's absolutely a, a good teacher. He's someone that, that, that we can respect and get behind, and, and we can acknowledge that you know what God must be with this kind of a person. And if we're being really, really honest, like this is exactly how uh, most of our country today believes Jesus is. This is who we think that he is. In all my time, you know, dealing with people inside and outside of the church, like I've very, I've heard very, very few people speak negatively about Jesus. Even doing street evangelism and meeting strangers and stuff like that, we talk about who do you think that Jesus is? And, and, and people are going to have nice things to say about Jesus over and over and over again. They're going to overwhelmingly say, yeah, he was a great teacher. I want to live my life after this person. But unfortunately, like that kind of a mentality and that kind of a belief system has trickled inside the walls of the church and is starting to um, impact the way that we think about Jesus too. I want to show you a little bit about what this looks like because I think it's very, very subtle, and I think that it's trickled inside the walls of the church and it's kind of corrupted the way that we think and view who Jesus was. Um, This is taken from an article from the New York Times called Stealing Jesus. Uh, It was written a number of years ago. Uh, The author is an uh, Episcopalian believer, he says, and, um, and uh, I want to say that whenever we do these names and these titles, like, they're not all the exact same thing. I hope we understand that. Let's just take his, um, uh, what he says about himself. He's an Episcopalian believer and stuff, and he's making this contrast, and he's making, writing this article about how conservative evangelical Christianity has stolen everything that's beautiful about who Jesus is. Right? And he's pitting these two, these two positions against each other. He's calling on the legalistic Christians, which he's saying conservative evangelical Christians are the legalistic ones because they believe in the authority of God's word and want to follow it like that. Um, and then he's pitting the legalistic Christians against the non-legalistic Christians. So don't get confused in this whole thing, okay? Uh, we're the legalistic Christians in this whole article. But here's what he says. Uh, check out how he talks about it. Legalistic Christians see truth as something that's established in the Bible and that's knowable, Inasmuch as God has chosen to reveal it, non-legalistic Christians see truth as something only knowable by God and the various belief systems from other world religions can only attempt to point the way to God and his truth. Legalistic Christians, they understand eternal life to mean a, a heavenly reward after death for those who accept Jesus as their savior and are actually saved. Non-legalistic Christians more often understand it to denote a unity with God that exists outside the dimension of time and that can also be experienced here and now in this life. Legalistic Christians see Jesus' death on the cross as a transaction by means of which Jesus paid for the sins of believers and won them eternal life. Legalistic Christians... I'm sorry, non legalistic Christians see it as a powerful and mysterious symbol of God's infinite love for suffering mankind and as the natural culmination of Jesus' ministry of love and selflessness. Legalistic Christians believe that Jesus' chief purpose was to carry out the act of atonement. Non legalistic Christians believe that Jesus' chief purpose was to teach that God loves all people as parents love their children and that all humanity is one. Isn't that fascinating? And church, I, it, it's exactly how most of our world, um, even inside uh, the confines of Christianity, has a way of thinking about Jesus. And, and it sounds incredibly inclusive and it sounds incredibly wide and all of these different things. But what we've got to understand is that even that is an exclusive view of God. Probably one of the most popular ways that we think and even talk about God today is in the parable of uh, the six blind men and the, the elephant. Have we, have we heard this story before? Um, shared it a long time ago, but you probably heard it in a classroom setting or something like that. I heard it a long time ago when I was a student at AM, and my religion pro- professor was kind of was saying it just like this. He's saying how arrogant it is for anyone to believe that they have knowledge about who God is, and so he shares this story to kind of illustrate what he means. And you've seen the picture. You can go ahead and put it up there, but it goes kind of like this. The the world religions, and God is kind of like six blind men trying to describe an elephant. They're going, and they got the blinders on their eyes, and they're going, and one guy's grabbing the tail and saying, hey, an elephant is kind of like a rope. And another one's grabbing the the feet and kind of going, yeah, an elephant's kind of like a tree. And another one's touching the side of the elephant kind of going, yeah, an elephant's kind of like this wall over here. And, of course, the point of the whole story is that an elephant is not just one of those things in and of themselves. The elephant is the entirety of all of these different things. And so the story goes like this, such is true of God right? Such is true of God. It's the exact same way with God. Uh, He is not just one who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like the Christians say that he is. He is not like one as the Muslims describe him to be one. He is not just spiritual uh, like the cosmic humanists say. He's not in everything like the pantheists say. And he's not just about enlightenment, kind of like the Buddhists say. Uh, He is the combination of what all of these different blind religions say is true about God. And the entire analogy, it sounds fantastic, right? Like it sounds wonderful until you start thinking about it, right? Like, like number one, it, just, it, it denies the conflicting propositions of each major world religion because they cannot be competing with each other and both be true at the exact same time. I shared it with you last week, I think it was one of the most enlightening experiences at the Thanksgiving Square a little while ago, but I was listening to the Unitarian speaker share about this message and I was standing next to a Muslim leader at that time and he leans over to me and he says, don't you hate these kinds of things where they pretend like our distinctives of our faith, like they don't really matter. He goes, don't you hate it when they pretend like we're not just looking around each other going, I secretly want you to convert. And we laughed about it, and I was going, I can't believe that you're actually saying that, because like, that's, exactly, that's exactly how we all think. We understand like there's contradictions going on here, and they're not all the exact same thing. Church, like, we all live by faith, and so that's problem number one. Like, the second thing is that it assumes that every world religion and everyone else in the story is blind, except for one person, right? Who's the one person who's not blind in the story? the narrator, right? Like they're the only enlightened one who's able to see what the entire elephant looks like. And church, what I'm saying here is that we're all living by faith and we all genuinely believe like what we're believing about God is really, really true. I love the way that, um, I think it was Rick Warren who said it like this. He says, at the end of the day, we're all betting our lives on something. Like some bet on a law, some bet on their own works and intelligence. Some bet that there's absolutely nothing on the other side of eternity. I'm betting it all on Jesus. And so make no mistake, we are all living by faith and we're betting on something. And church is exactly right. Like, like we're all betting on something. Atheists are betting that God doesn't actually exist. Agnostics are believing and betting on the fact that if he does exist, he doesn't really care what you do or what you believe about him. Spiritualists are betting on the fact that he's unknowable and mysterious and all he wants you to do is to to arbitrarily love people as you see and define love. And relativists are all betting that somehow all these contradicting truths are not going to really matter to the one true God in in the end. And so my point, church, is that we all do it. We we all live by faith and we all believe that what we are genuinely believing in, we, we believe that these things are true. And so, if peace is the real problem with exclusivity, and every single one of us actually have exclusive views about God, then shouldn't we start looking at the content of our faith in order to see which one has the capacity to actually bring the peace and the love that we, lo- that we want and need it to bring? And church, here's the reality, like, when that's the question that's on the table, then the gospel is always going to shine because that's exactly what Jesus came to do, and it's exactly what he's about to explain to Nicodemus here in this verse, He continues in verse two, and and he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, like, we know that your teachers come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing unless God were with him. And Jesus immediately responds and he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And you're kind of reading this, going, Okay, like, what just happened here? Like, why is Jesus responding this way? I mean, did, did Nicodemus even ask Jesus a question here? No, like, what's Jesus responding to? Like Nicodemus just comes and he says, Jesus, we, we know that you're a teacher from God. And Jesus immediately is like, wrong. Like very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're actually born again. He's responding to this false idea that he only came as a teacher. Like immediately, I, I know that you're a teacher and I know that you come from God. He's going, no, 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 no. You're not even going to see or enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And of course, Nicodemus is really confused by the response as anyone would be. Because if anybody's going to be approved before God, it would be him, right? Pharisee, Sanhedrin, a law around the law. Like he knows exactly what to obey and what not to obey. And so he, like, he's confused by this answer. And in verse 4, he says, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time in the mother's womb to be born. And so he's taking it very, very literally here. And of course, you're thinking literally here, then you're going to be confused very, very much. And so Jesus responds and he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. He's repeating himself. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Church, in other words, like being born again is not a type of Christianity. Are you with me on that? It's it's what he's saying, like being born again is not a type of Christianity. There's no such thing as a Christian saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born again types. Uh, Church, if you are a Christian, then you are born again. And if you have been born again, then you may not, if you have not been born again, then you may be really, really religious, but you are not actually saved is what he's saying to Nicodemus. Don't be surprised that I'm telling you that you must be born again because what you need is not a brand new way. What you need is a brand new life. That's what Nicodemus doesn't get. Like, he's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's, like, one of the most dedicated and sincere and educated uh, and religious men in all of Jerusalem. And he's not just trying to observe the law. He's created a law around the law, around the law, so that it doesn't even come close to offending the law. And what Jesus just said is that even in all that religiosity, you're completely missing the point. Like, Isaiah's going to put it like this. He's going to say, all that righteousness all that sincerity and all that obedience, all that caution and all that religious practice, all that, that saying no to these things over here, like they're like filthy rags before the holiness of God. And, and Paul's going to say the same thing. He's going to say, like, we were lost and completely dead in our sins. We were by nature children of wrath. And in Romans 3, he's going to say there's, there's none who seek God. There's none who are righteous, not even one. There's none who understands and there's none who actually seek God. And, and that's the problem that Nicodemus is having accepting. He doesn't see himself like that. All that studying, all that sincerity, all that devotion, all that religious practice, and, and still nothing's changed inside of him. He's still not able to love. It's why Jesus is going to take, Matthew chapter 23, he's going to take an entire chapter to completely rip the hip- hypocrites and the religious elite at that time. He's going to call them empty whitewashed tombs. And he's going to say, you tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and you tie them on other people's shoulders these are the people that are lead, leading the religious practice today. the day. This is, this is the Nicodemus, and he's saying, you're empty, whitewashed tombs because you're incredibly great at the exterior, but there's nothing real going on inside. And, and, and you're tying up these loads, and you're, you're, you're creating this burden for everybody else. Church, like, the problem is not with exclusivity. The problem is with a heart that does not want to love God. It's why he's not just a teacher, he's also a savior, because our greatest need is not in just a brand new way of doing life. Our greatest need is to completely be reborn. And it's exactly what Jesus is about to describe how to do here in verse 13. He's going to get into the details of this because none of it makes any sense to Nicodemus. How do you do this? I'm as religious as it gets, and he's thinking very literally here. And so Jesus says this. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who's come from heaven, me, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, the scene where they're wandering in the wilderness and a bunch of Israelites were bitten by poisonous snakes. And God, it's this bizarre, bizarre, bizarre story where God gives Moses, and he says, "Make make a rod and hold up this bronze snake, and when people look upon it, they will be saved. And what he's saying here is, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here it is, our favorite verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already not because they're not great people and not because they're not more moral than their neighbors and not because they don't do good things for the poor and the oppressed and not because... They're not incredibly religious and don't have great attendance and things like that, but simply because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's it. I mean, five times here in this passage and 84 times in John's gospel, he's going to use this word believe to show us that even though it's an incredibly exclusive path, it's an incredibly inclusive invitation here. Whosoever may believe In the name of God's one and only son, Jesus, will be born again. You know who he's talking about in that? Whosoever. He's talking about King David, caught in adultery, murdering his best friend. Whosoever may believe, he's talking about Mary Magdalene, possessed by seven different demons and healed by Jesus. Talking about people with a past, people with a track record. Whosoever may believe, he's talking about doubting Thomas, who says, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I don't really believe that Jesus is actually alive. I'm going to need to put my hand inside of his wounds to be able to believe these things and these stories about him. Like he's talking about Peter, the denier. Like Peter, I, I'm, I'm going to follow you all of my days, and then all of a sudden, now I'm not. Uh, Peter, I'm, I'm going to be with you until the very end, and now I don't even know who this guy is. We're talking about that person is included in the whosoever will believe in the name of God's one and only Son, will be born again. No pretense and no competition and no self-righteousness involved, nothing to hang your hat on except the love of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I was completely lost and dead in my sins. And in the middle of that place, Jesus lived and died for me so that I might be born again and have new life in him. remember a number of years ago when uh, Caleb was around too, Uh, you know, he's learning to eat pretty well, and he's sitting at his table and everything, and we're having spaghetti as a family that that night, and we love love kind of watching these things, watching a little toddler learn to eat, and I mean, it's an absolute mess, and so it's fun for like the first five minutes, but it's not so fun afterwards when you got to clean up after them, and we were having spaghetti that night, and so it was really hilarious, he loved it a whole lot, but you know, the kid takes two hands, and he just like buries them in the bowl of the spaghetti, right? And it's like filled with sauce and meatballs and noodles and all this stuff. And he just takes it and he's just like, he's just chowing down on this spaghetti. And Kat and I are kind of looking back and we're laughing at him. We're like, this is hilarious. I mean, the kid's got sauce and noodles all over his face. And he's like loving it because it's the greatest food in the world. And and finally, after a little while, I was like, hey, buddy, uh, you got a little something on your face there. And he's like, what? What? And he takes his hand and, of course, his hand's like all covered in sauce and noodles and stuff. And he's like, where is it, daddy? Where is it, daddy? And he starts like wiping his face and... Every time he starts wiping his face and trying to clean himself, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And what he needed was someone who was already clean to come and do for him what he could not do for himself. Church, it changes everything. It's the new birth that he's talking about here. It's being born again, someone who's already clean to come and do for me what I cannot do for myself. Can we just listen to how God was previewing this day back in Ezekiel 36? Like, Like there's nothing accidental. This whole thing was planned out back in Ezekiel 36. He's preparing the nation of Israel and he's preparing these leaders, which is why he's saying to Nicodemus, why are you so surprised by this? I've been telling you this day was coming. Ezekiel 36, here's what he says. This is the captivity years. Uh, this is the captivity years when they're hopeless and they're kind of, and, and through the prophet of Ezekiel, he is, uh, he's giving them a picture of what's to come. And he says this, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I'll bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your Idols. I will give you a brand new heart and a brand new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees so that you're careful to keep my laws. Church, that's what we're talking about in the new birth. We're not talking about a brand new path. We're not talking about a brand new law, a brand new way for you to clean yourself up with. We're talking about a brand new life. We're talking about a brand new identity and a brand new purpose and a brand new heart and a brand new indwelling Holy Spirit that is going to empower you to love one another as God has perfectly loved you. Church, the problem is not with exclusivity. The problem is with a heart that doesn't want to love and a faith that can do nothing about it. 1 John 4, 7, he's going to say this. He's going to say, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if you want to know if you're born again, then look at the way that you love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, church, love should be the norm for everyone who's born again. Like that is the norm for all who are born again, brand new heart, brand new Holy Spirit, allowing us to, 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 to horizontally love everyone because we've been first vertically loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exactly what he's talking about here. And we're not just talking about this, some, some emotional love here, that this, this positive feelings for other people. We're talking about like radical and uncommon and, and reckless love that we were singing about earlier. I mean, you know how hard it is to love one another? Like that's what he's talking about here. Just look around this room if you wanna know. Like, judge each other quickly. Like, you know how hard it is to love one another? I'm kidding about the judging part. But, I mean, just look around in here. Like, it's uncommon to be able to love one another like this. Like, in this room, we've got Redskin fans who hate the Cowboys. Right? Like, we've got Longhorns, and we've got Aggies, and we've got Horn Frogs, and we've got Red Raiders, and we've got Baylor Bears, and we've got Mustangs, and we've got Republicans, and we've got Democrats. Like, and we've got rich, and we've got poor, and we've got introverts, and we've got extroverts and we've got athletes and we've got artists and and then on top of that like jesus keeps one upping himself in the the sermon on the mount when he says you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i'm going a little bit further and am going to say to you you should actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in other words it's not just the believers and it's not just the people that are like you inside of these walls we're talking about everybody on the outside too It's not everybody who just agrees with you and thinks like you and looks like you and loves the same things like that. We're talking about everybody who's different and who holds contrary values. We're talking about bullies and liars. We're talking about hateful people and greedy people. We're talking about fake people and gossips. And we're talking about people that are just like you and people that have nothing to do, that, that, that people don't even like the things that you like. Like that's who we are called to love. And what Jesus is saying here is that the reason you're gonna be able to do so is because you've got a brand new heart and a brand new spirit inside of you which empowers you to love one another as God has always loved you. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Church, we love because God first loved us. It's who he is, church. It's not just that he's loving. It's that he's the very definition of love. Like I was completely lost and dead in my sins. All my righteousness was like filthy rags before the holiness of God. And because he's holy and just, like our sin has to be dealt with, but because he's also the definition of love, the way he chose to deal with our sin was by willingly going to the cross and taking the penalty of my sin upon himself so that we might receive grace and be born again in a new life with him. I'll never forget a while ago traveling throughout Vickery one day and I was talking with this guy and we were talking about gospel matters and I was explaining to him the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and he just kept looking down at the the concrete and just shaking his head and he's going, bro, you don't know the things that I've done. That's all he could say is, you don't know the things that I've done. I'm disqualified. I understand that that love exists for those people over there but you do not know the things that I've done. And I said, all due respect, you don't know what God has done for you. Church, like even on the cross, right? Like even on the cross when I mean just after he's been beaten to within inches of his life and just after he's been spit upon and mocked by everybody else one of the last things that he says is forgive them father for they know not what they do. I mean who does that? Radical, extravagant, reckless love of Jesus Christ. It's John chapter 13 this beautiful scene just before Jesus is crucified and even betrayed by his disciples and Jesus decides to teach them how to love other people, and so he gets on his hands and on his knees and takes, out his, takes off his outer garments, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Anyone else hate feet as much as my wife does? Like if, I know, if I want to mess with her, I know to just take them off and just you know, kind of put them up in the face. And I feed her. She should never do. Like they're disgusting and they're nasty now, but like they were every bit as disgusting and nasty then. Everybody's walking everywhere you go and it's sandals and it's dirt and it's sweat and it's all mixed together. And here's Jesus on his hands and on his knees and he's washing his disciples' feet and he's saying, let this be an example of how you should love one another. And I can imagine the scene. It's like Peter and it's James and it's John. They're coming one by one and he's just, he's just doing what he does and he's just washing their feet and then all of a sudden Judas comes up there And he's in line too. You know what I'm talking about? We're not like disciple Judas, his friend Judas, the one who's selling him out and betraying him for 30 pieces of silver, Judas. And Jesus washes his feet too. Because you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you that you should love your enemy and even pray for those who are about to persecute you. Church is radical, 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 reckless love of Jesus Christ for all of humanity. And if you've been born again, then what it means is you've got a brand new heart and you've got a brand new spirit that empowers you to love one another as God has always loved you. Church, the problem is not with exclusivity. The problem is with a heart that does not want to love and a faith that can do nothing about it. Church, where would we be if not for the love of God? The radical, radical, reckless love of God on my behalf. I read this story, and I'm saying this is exactly my testimony. Nicodemus, a religious person growing up in a Christian home with people in ministry and loving the church and loving other Christians and all these different kinds of things. And Had it not been for the radical grace of the Lord Jesus Christ catching hold of my affections, any one of us could be in that exact same place. Religious hypocrisy at its worst, empty whitewashed tombs, just weighing people down with the weightiness of a law with no affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Where would our city be if not for the new birth? You ever wonder that? Like where would our city be if not for the new birth and what Jesus came to do in giving us brand new life? I'm thinking about all the different hospitals that have been built by churches that are filled with men and women who have been born again and share in God's love for the hurting. I'm thinking of the Methodists, Presbyterians, Baylor, like where would our city be had it not been for the new life offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ like where, where would we think about like all the different refugees that are here in town like where where would where would our where would we be if people weren't born again and given a brand new heart and given a brand new spirit i'm thinking of for the nations i'm thinking of love is victory i'm thinking of seek i'm thinking of the Northwest Outreach Center, men and women who've been born again and now sharing God's love for humanity, even the refugees that are here in Dallas trying to figure out how to do new life here. I'm thinking about the homeless, like like, like Our Calling and the Dallas Life Center and the Bridge that are all filled with men and women who've been born again and sharing God's love for the homeless people. Thinking about West Dallas nearly 35 years ago, the Dallas Morning News labeled West Dallas as the second most violent and drug-addicted city in the entire nation, next to Detroit, Michigan. And how you go back over there today and it doesn't even look like remotely the same community because 35 years ago, Arville Wilson decided to stay home and plant a church called West Dallas Community Church that's mobilized the rest of the city and the rest of the believers in the city to come and to love that community in an incredible way. I'm thinking about men and women who have been born again by the Spirit of God and are now taking that vertical love of God and horizontally spreading it to the rest of the world. I'm thinking about South Dallas and the exact same thing. I'm thinking about drugs and crime and addiction and homelessness and, and thinking about Pastor Chris Simmons and Cornerstone Baptist Church uh, along, and how they're, they're partnering with hundreds of other churches and other uh, ministries all around town to go in and to do an incredible work in South Dallas serving unwed mothers, doing rehabilitation centers, feeding the homeless, distributing food and clothing and doing on-the-job jo- on training for recently released convicts and how they're, they're mobilizing people all around the city. And it is men and women who have been born again by the Spirit of God, brand new heart, brand new spirit, that have been vertically loved by God Almighty through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have a brand new life, and now share that love horizontally with the rest of the city church. Where in the world would our world be had it not been for the new birth? It's offered in Jesus Christ. Like, we're not doing it out of obligation, right? Like, it's not an obligation. It's not to go and do these different things in order to be approved by God. It's, it's not by works of righteousness, Titus says, which we've done, but according to God's mercy that he saved us. It's, it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth that we're talking about. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but it's according to God's mercy that he saved us. It's, it's by the washing of regeneration, this new birth, this, this brand new heart and this brand new spirit, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit by which we move. It's the vertical love of God being spread horizontally to the rest of the world around us. I love the way J.D. Greer talks about it. He says it's kind of like um, the two different ways to make a balloon fly. He says it's, it's, there's two different ways that you can make a balloon fly. Number one is to take a balloon and blow it up yourself. You can tie it off and then you can just keep hitting it up with your hands, right? That's one way to make it fly. And he says, essentially, this is what we do week in and week out of the church. We come to the church and we expect the preacher to kind of beat us a little bit. You know, go read your Bible, go love the community, go do this, that, and the other. And we expect kind of to be hit up a little bit. And it works for a little while. We go back home and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday comes around and the balloon keeps flying back. We need to go back week in and week out so we can be beat up a little bit um, every single week. He says there's a better way to make a balloon fly is to fill it with helium. And then it'll do what it was always designed to do. Church, it's exactly what it is to be born again. Brand new heart, brand new spirit filled with God. It's the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not go and do in order to be made right before God. It is go because everything has already been taken care of by him. want to end with this. I've been uh, fascinated with the story of John and Charles Wesley recently. Many of you know them, um, founders of the Methodist Church and incredible evangelists and ministers throughout history and um, didn't understand that they didn't actually come to know the Lord until later in their life long after they were already ordained in ministry. And Their testimony, they're talking about how um, before the time of their conversion, they they called themselves, they kind of had a fair weather religion is how they described it says that they were both ordained, they both preached, they taught, they composed hymns, and they even gave themselves the missionary work all to no avail because they had had not Christ since they lived by works and not by faith. Here's how John Wesley describes his conversion experience. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Can you imagine that? I get to just go into a service and like all he's doing is reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. I feel like you guys should appreciate me a little bit more. Um, (laughs) About a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. It was then that I finally trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even my sins. And he saved me from the law of sin and death. All these years I've been preaching about the saving power of Jesus Christ, and it wasn't until that night that he actually became my Lord and my personal Savior. I wonder if that's where some of us are today. Religious, Nicodemus, week in and week out, striving, doing, working, obedient, never been transformed by the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people ask if that's true, if that's what he does, brand new heart, brand new spirit, then why is there not more love? And Jesus is saying in this passage, it's not enough to be religious, but you must be born again. Brand new heart, brand new spirit.